All right. Welcome to episode 82 of Shug Me in the Morning. I'm Shug. And today we're going to start off with a little bit of sports because, you know, we have like a really wild um, divisional round of the NFL playoffs. It's so crazy because, you know, the weekend before was like the wild card round. And this past weekend was pretty wild. So I've been kind of like, you know, Freudian slipping, you know, calling the wild card round because it was a crazy set of games. You had Bengals, Titans, which was um ended on a field goal, three points. Uh, Packers, 49ers, which also ended on a field goal. Then Bucks and Rams, which ended um also with a field goal then you had the probably the most exciting game of them all which was Kansas City and Buffalo ending in an overtime thriller and you know I'm gonna discuss that for a little bit because people are talking about like you know the controversial like overtime rule so I'm gonna get to that in in just a moment but also the baseball National Baseball Hall of Fame announced their inductees for this year. And, you know, it was a lot of prominent players last year on a ballot. And it was, you know, a lot of questionable players first years on a ballot. So um, in these type of situations, you, you kind of look at their um, voting numbers and, you know, you kind of see how they're trending, whether they're trending up, whether they're trending down. And this year, only one person uh, got into the Hall of Fame. It quite it caused quite a bit of stir because, um, as with baseball, we've you know as with the recent history of baseball, um, and by recent I mean my entire lifetime, which is you know thirty plus years that you know steroids and PDs have been you know clouding over the game and been kind of like um, polarizing um, as to whether or not people should be let in or not. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about um, Euphoria episode three, which to me was probably the best episode from like first minute to last minute, you know, perhaps not the best episode, but probably like the most um, intriguing from start to finish. But I'm hearing from other people, it was kind of like, you know, okay, it, it wasn't as fascinating as I thought it was. So I'm going to discuss that later on. So, so the Bills and the Kansas City Chiefs, you know, got into such a phenomenal game. They actually scored about like 26 points in like the last like minute and a half between the two teams. But, you know, for a time, you know, the overtime rules have changed in football there's one set of rules that um go for the regular season and there's another set of rules that have gone on for the playoffs and the set of rules in the playoffs is each team gets possession but if the team with the first possession scores a touchdown the game's over if it's one a field goal the other team has an opportunity to drive up the field and possibly win on a touchdown or tie the game on a field goal. And then after that point, the next um, team that scores wins. Um, so what happened in this game was open and drive. Uh, Kansas City wins the coin toss. Uh, I believe it was like 12 plays, one up the field and, and scored a um, winning touchdown. And that was the end of it. Went to the, you know, secured the ticket to their fourth consecutive AFC championship game. I also want to like point out that Andy Reid is actually, if I'm not mistaken, he's got to be like the only coach in the history of the NFL to take his team, to take two separate teams in two separate conferences to four consecutive conference championships because uh, obviously, he's a little bit more successful with Kansas City now, but he did carry the Philadelphia or coach the, the Philadelphia Eagles to four straight in the early 2000s, you know, going to the Super Bowl in um, 
2005, um, which they ended up losing uh, to the Patriots. But, you know, that's a significant um, achievement. So, you know, I, I think when it's all said and done, like Andy Reid's, Andy Reid's going to be um, up there, especially now that he has a Super Bowl and multiple Super Bowl appearances. And, you know, who knows what happens this weekend. You know, if they win and they go to the Super Bowl yet again, and which will be their third consecutive, which is also a significant um a significant accomplishment, you know, going to the Super Bowl, possibly win. Um, he might be up there with some of the upper echelon of NFL coaches, so good for him. But, you know, it's been polarizing. But to me, I feel like it's fair. Uh, teams have maybe like 10 uh, drives during a game, so... You know, if touching if scoring a touchdown was so easy, you know, teams would score like you know fifty points a game. But we know that's not the case. So I think if a team throughout our entire game has a tough time getting up the field and scoring a touchdown, um, if they win the coin toss in overtime and are able to carve up the field and go up and score a touchdown, to me it's more than fair that that's the end of the game because, you know, what people don't realize about the coin toss is it's like, if you win the coin toss, like the pressure is on your offense to score and move up the field and the pressure is on the defense to prevent you, to prevent the offense from doing so as, as presently constructed them rules seem more than fair to find out if the best team won. You know, I know some people uh, probably wanted to see the other team get the ball, but I'm like, you know, if they scored a touchdown, like the other team has to score a touchdown. So, of course, all the other team would have to do is play prevent defense, you know, uh, keep them to short routers, you know, short throws. And, uh, you know, that's not fun to watch. I mean, what's really fun to watch is like a walk-off touchdown basically um as opposed to like a walk-off field goal where you know one team goes up the field you know basically only has to go up like 25 yards and then they're within field goal range and they could take a shot and that's the end of the game which used to be the old rules so um this weekend sets up to be a pretty fun sunday uh chiefs and bengals you know, who would have thought, like, the Bengals would have made it this far, but shout out to um, Joe Burrows and uh, the Bengals' defense because they they carried them to the championship, and we'll see what they do against Patrick Mahomes, obviously. Like, the Chiefs are going to be heavily favored. And then on the NFC side, you have San Francisco and the Rams, which was interesting because um, it's being – reported that the Rams organization is trying their darndest to keep fans from San Francisco uh, from taking over their stadium yet again during this championship game, um, restricting, you know, basically using like people's billing information to uh, deny them access to SoFi Stadium if they don't live within the greater Los Angeles area because I think earlier in the season there was a game um, with the Rams and the 49ers because obviously they're division rivals where basically the the crowd was kind of like 60-40 49ers fans. Uh, I just brought up like an interesting thought to me i'm just like if you have to go that far to prevent your opposing to to prevent an opposing team's fan base to enter your stadium then perhaps the rams should have just stayed in st louis but that's a story for another day so we'll you know i'm excited to see what happens this weekend with the nfl um playoffs and then we have the baseball hall of fame which announced its inductee, uh, should have been inductees. And the only person I got into the Hall of Fame this year is Big Poppy.
David Ortiz. Um, you know, speaking as a Yankee fan, um, you know, play for a team I don't like. Um, play really well against my team. But, you know, over the past years, I've grown to appreciate um, David Ortiz's contributions to the game. I mean, you know, what else can be said? But, you know, the one thing about David Ortiz is around 2010, I think sometime between like 2009 and 2011, uh, the same uh, list of positive steroid tests that were given in 2003 in which A-Rod um, and I believe like Sammy Sosa uh, a couple other people it was supposed to be um, anonymous and essentially it was a it, it was they tested they tested major leaguers anonymously and 103 of them came up positive and it was going to be like an indicator as to whether or not uh, steroids or PEDs, uh, HGH, you know, those type of things were so prevalent in the game that they would have to start um, policing it. And somehow, some way, like A-Rod's name was revealed. Um, Sammy Sosa's name was revealed, I believe, but he was long retired. Um and another player who was then still playing was David Ortiz, who um, a report came out that he was on that list as well. And, you know, essentially he was like, you know, I'm going to, you know, it was like kind of like the OJ Simpson thing where it's just like, I'm going to go out and find the real killers. And uh, David Ortiz said, yeah, like, I'm going to, you know, investigate, you know, I'm going to have people investigate this thing and clear my name and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, for some reason, everybody forgot about it. So, you know, he's definitely linked to steroids. And I mean, basically, if you think about it, it's like, you know, if A-Rod's name was revealed on there and he admitted to using it, uh, Sammy Sosa's name was on there and he admitted to using it. And some of the players, you know, who were revealed were on it and admitted to be uh, admitted to using it. I mean, you know, why was, you know, Big Poppy basically the only one who was on that list and kind of got like a pass for it? Um, you know, and my thoughts on steroids are they're part of a game, they're part of the game and the history of the game. Like, you go to the Baseball Hall of Fame, like, they have displays up of uh, Barry Bonds, you know, breaking the home run record single season and the all-time home run record. They have displays of Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire and, you know, breaking Roger Maris's record. So as far as, like, the history of the game, because the Baseball um, Hall of Fame is a museum and is basically a celebration of the history of the game and they have you know those stuff in display they don't have it taken down it's all part of the game another thing that's a part of the game that you know you see in the national baseball hall of fame is um they have a section which celebrates the negro leagues and the players who weren't allowed to play in the major leagues and also when you go into the hall you know with the, the, the room with the inductees and their plaques and stuff like that, there's plenty of people that played before non-whites were allowed to play the game of baseball. And, you know, this is a question I pose to um, a co-worker of mine who's very, you know, traditional in his, you know, um, very traditional in his thoughts on, uh, whether or not PED users should be allowed in Hall of Fame. Um, and his, you know, stance is that they shouldn't. And I posed the question to him. I, you know, I asked him, I was like, why? And it's like, you know, well, their numbers, like, they're inflated. Um, they had that extra advantage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I said to him, okay, Major League Baseball has been around since the 1880s. 
and it wasn't until 60 plus years after that that they allowed Jackie Robinson and eventually more and more African Americans and Latin players and all kind of different players from different backgrounds basically up until for the first 60 years of baseball it was a white man's game of course they would let in like you know Native Americans um, and people of Hispanic descent who were um, on the surface, like, looked European, um, but they would not allow players of African descent in the major leagues. And the question I posed to him was, you know, imagine if from next year on, you know, if you took every single player of African descent, you're talking about the Dominican players, were dark skin the african-american players you took them all uh even the asian american the, the asian players if you took them all out and it was just all white guys instantly the level of competition would be lowered because you'd be talking about guys from single double and triple a possibly white guys playing at the major league level when obviously in the current construct is telling you that these guys aren't major league players. And that essentially was the lay of the land for the first 60 plus years of major league baseball. So my point being is that, you know, there's guys in the hall of fame who've never played against a person who wasn't white um and there was this time in baseball where you literally would have the worst you would prefer to sign the worst white baseball player before you signed the best black baseball player by that token you know wouldn't Beirut's 714 home runs be kind of question as to whether or not like how many of those home runs were hit off of guys who you know if all things were even and African Americans and Latin American players were were able to play how many home runs would he have then so I think that same argument is what's being said for people who use PADs so this year we had Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds, who after this year would eventually fall off the ballot. Um, we haven't heard from Barry Bonds and uh, Roger Clemens was very gracious in, you know, his response to falling off the ballot now that he's exceeded the 10 years. If you've listened to the show, uh, my best, you know, when we talked about our best celebrity encounters you know uh you know you could go back and listen but roger clemens came to my job once and um i was a huge fan of his beforehand you know back when he was with the yankees um when he came back from the yankees i remember i actually went to a game when he was with the astros i think amidst like his final cy young season um when he played against the Mets, uh, you know, when he was with the Astros. So I've always been a huge fan. And then, um, you know, they always say, like, never meet your heroes. But that day, I was really glad I met my hero because he was so kind and nice. And he um, signed stuff for us. So even if I asked him to, he offered. Um, and I was just like, I, he when he left, I was just like, I don't understand why people don't like this guy. And I mean, obviously, not everyone's interactions are the same, but you know, my interaction with Roger Clemens, he seemed like a very pleasant dude. And, you know, as great of a baseball player as I think he is, I think he uh, came off as just as great of a person. Um, Barry Bonds, I know he kind of had like a bad reputation, um, you know, as far as his demeanor attitude towards reporters. But, you know, either way, you can't deny these things. And somebody put, put it very well when it happened um through a tweet it was you know they said a seven time a seven time mvp not being in a hall of fame a seven time mvp not being a hall of fame is just wild and it's true i mean 
you know, for as much as his career was linked to PEDs, I mean, his first, like, three MVPs, you know, were back when he was um, with the Pirates and when, you know, his early career with the Giants, like, if you looked at him back then, he probably wasn't doing PEDs back then or probably wasn't doing as as much as he's alleged to have been doing later on in his career. And he won MVPs back then, and he was doing things that a lot of people didn't do. He stole 40 bases while hitting 40 home runs, which is uh, something extremely rare. Uh, he And he eventually is... I believe he's the only member of the 400-400 club, which is someone who's stolen 400 bases and also hit 400 home runs. PD-associated records aside, you know, such as the single season and the the all-time home run record, you know, he's got the record for on-base percentage in a season. He's got the record for walks. Uh, you're talking about stats of you know where he's not even hitting the ball he's just getting on base which is basically like more important than getting hits and then when you talk about hits he was actually blackball out of the league while being 65 hits away from 3,000 so he you know added to his long list of accomplishments you know he would have been a member of the 500 3,000 hit club um, 500 home runs, 3,000 hits, and an actual member of that who is one of my favorite baseball players of all time, and I had a, the joy of watching throughout my time growing up, Alex Rodriguez. It was his first year on a ballot, and he actually got like a third of the voters to vote for him on his first ballot. He wasn't as lucky as David Ortiz to have gotten the 75%, I believe, that guess you inducted but you know obviously a rod difference between him and you know clemens and bonds is you know clemens and bonds they've been alleged alleged to have these association with steroids and um a rod like flat out admitted it and obviously got suspended for a year for being associated with apd operation so his career has been sullied by that but i mean the on the field accomplishments. I think he was like the youngest player to hit 400 home runs, youngest to hit uh, 500, and I believe the youngest to hit 600. But you know, also a great hitter. Um, because usually, you know, that's why I bring up the thing with Bonds. It's very rare that somebody's as good of a pure hitter while also being a home run hitter you usually get one or the other so the fact that these guys had all these home runs and all these hits at the same time does show that they have you know a skill i playing a game and uh, a-rod and barry bonds were gold glove players in the field and you know it's ironic to me because david ortiz is it's funny because they always you know with his name like they'll put first baseman dh and the only time you ever saw David Ortiz playing first base was when he like literally had to, um, when they were playing in like NL parks. Uh, other than that, he was just strictly a DH. So his contribution to the game was just you know to hit. He never had to do any of the other things. He was literally great at one thing, and usually to get into the Hall of Fame, you'd have to be great at multiple things. But you know, I'm saying not to say it like I'm not saying that David Ortiz is not a Hall of Famer. I'm glad he got in the Hall of Fame. I think he's a Hall of Famer. But, you know, my thing I was always saying was, you know, if you let him in, you have to let these guys in. And it wasn't so. And as I said, somebody put it, you know, very, um, very well, whereas seven, you know, for Lee, you know, for a seven time Hall of Famer. To not be in the Hall of Fame is just crazy. Um, for a seven-time Cy Young award winner to not be in the Hall of Fame is crazy. For a three-time MVP and fourth all-time in home runs and having uh, 696 home runs and 3,000-plus hits to not be in the Hall of Fame is crazy. But like I said, 
to question these guys' stats. You know, nobody goes back and retro- retroactively, you know, questions uh, Ty Cobb stats or Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Joe DiMaggio, uh, Rogers Hornsby, uh, Onus Wagner, not Lajway. All these all-time great baseball players who literally had the caveat of playing against like a lot of white men who were major leaguers just based on the color of their skin and you know just happened to be white and playing baseball when you know I, it's clearly evident like all-time great players like you know Cool Papa Bell, uh, Josh Gibson, Satchel Paige, uh, Buck O'Neill. Buck Leonard, all of these all-time great black players that weren't afforded the opportunity to play on the same field as these white players, you know, basically were shot out of the game. So how do we know how great they were? And we'll never know how great these players were because, you know, another old segment where we talked about the Negro Leagues being recognized as major leagues where, you know, you go on baseball reference and you look at the negro league stats it's like they only got to play like a handful of games so their stats don't even seem as wowing because they um they only play like a few games so you know on a bright side you know a-rod got like a third of the vote so perhaps he'll get like a higher amount going forward and Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds are now left to the Veterans Committee. And I'll tell you what, if that Veterans Committee is going to tell me that Harold Baines is a Hall of Famer and Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds isn't, then we, we could start looking at the National Baseball Hall of Fame as a joke if, you know, we aren't already. As I said at the beginning, I was really intrigued by this week's episode of Euphoria. You know, I had a lot going on. Um, I believe it's one of the few episodes where they showed like a title card. I may be um, mistaken, you know, showing something outside Euphoria. Either way, the title card was kind of stylized, but it opens a cold open where it shows Cal. You know, uh, Nate's dad as a kid. Um, and by a kid, I mean, like, you know, you know, between the ages of like 16, 17, and just turning 18. So I guess he used to wrestle in high school. Uh, and he had a really, really good friend. And it was highly um, hinted in the segments that, you know, in the scenes with them, that like he was like sexually attracted to his friend, but he never really acted on it. And in between his high school tenure, he met um, who would eventually be his wife, you know, Nate's mom. And uh, they start a sexual relationship. And it seems as though like he only had a sexual relationship with her to me to kind of like work off his frustrations at not being able to have a sexual relationship with his boy. And then I kind of had a scene where like his dad catches Cal and his friend, you know, they're like on Cal's bed, like laying down, nothing sexual, nothing. They just like kind of like they're on the bed, like just laying like next to each other, like at the foot of the bed and just talking and hanging out as like friends. It really couldn't be like seen as like something sexual but apparently like his dad kind of saw it like that or that's what was implied and it fast forwards to the graduation um eventually led to their graduation and even though they had partied elsewhere they wanted to party like alone so you know both being under the underage his friend says to him i know a place that we could go that would serve us so they go to some kind of like bar on the side of the highway and then once they get into the bar it's like apparently a gay bar and they do this whole like dance like literal like choreographed dance 
to this NXS song, which ends up with them actually like kissing. So they kind of like consummate this like sexual tension between each other. And then it, the next scene is him waking up with a hangover and getting a call from Nate's mom telling him that she's pregnant. And, you know, I was a bit confused because I forgot that Nate had like an older brother. Because I, I, the, the, this, it seemed like it was set in the mid '90s, and I'm like, if these kids are in high school now, it's kind of like a stretch that Nate would be born in the '90s. Either way, it was interesting because it kind of showed that Cal's essentially him with his friend. I forgot what his friend's name is, so I'm apologize for keep saying his friend. Cal is who he is with his friend. Um, when he's, you know, picking up these uh young boys and young trans kids and i can't remember if he picked up any young girls also um because this is going back to last season you know stuff that were on was on those dvds that nate found that eventually maddie found and he's essentially to everyone else he's just cal's just like his father so it kind of showed like you know his two sides and somehow it was funny. I saw a tweet and it said that um, if I was if I was Nate, I would have just um, gave old girl fifty dollars and lived my best life. So that that should make me laugh. Also, we got to see Rue, Jules, and Elliot um, last week. You kind of saw like Rue kind of keeping the two apart, but this week you actually got to see the three of them interact. And at one point, like Jules interrogates Elliot about you know whether or not he wants to have sex with with Rue to which he declines and then further like admitted that he does but kind of half he kind of admitted that he wanted to have sex with Jules as well and he kind of he admitted that he is bisexual or at least like pansexual and I think Rue uh saw the two of them Jules and Elliot kind of exchanging their you know, body counts, as we say. And I think Rue kind of caught the hint that she wasn't, you know, I, I think Rue, like, realized, or Rue was feeling as if, like, she was being pulled between the two of them. But then she started to see the pull between the two of them without her. And she realized, like, she wasn't being sexual enough with Jules, or at least that they didn't advance to that part of their relationship. So at a point where Rue and Jules were kind of um, riding their bikes together and end up in like somebody's backyard and Rue and Jules end up uh, getting sexual in the back and by way of doing quote unquote hand stuff. Um, and I thought I'd use that term because it shows how like sexually uh, uninhibited Rue is because usually like in you know that's people's like first sexual experience like kind of like you know touching each other not you know actual full-on like penetration so it was interesting that the first way she got sexual with Jules was to you know basically do hand stuff uh you know and like masturbate her but it was clear that like Jules and Elliot had a like connection like it had a, a scene where uh, I believe Rue was off doing something we're going to discuss uh, next and they were left alone um, and they had like a discussion and it seemed to me it got like a little flirty so it was very very interesting to check that out and you know we talked about how Rue was really like captivated in the opening episode of the season when she tagged along with Fez and Ashray to this like drug deal and I think she was like oh and I think, like, if you if you look back at the last episode, she talked about how, like, Elliot always had money for drugs. So I think she realized, like, she needed to get her own money on her own. But oddly enough, she decided to do it through selling drugs. And, you know, it's one of them, those things where it's like, you know, you probably like hot dogs, but you really don't want to know how it's made. And I think Rue ended up having that experience because she went to Karen's house, the lady from the first episode, and basically laid out this business plan. You know, it was funny as hell. It's like, you know, she was, it's like those type of business plans where like somebody's in like uh, the business management class 
um, the freshman business management class and, you know, you're tasked with coming up with a business plan. And she basically laid out this plan where she would recruit high school girls to be like drug mules. Sure enough, like Karen was like captivated by it. And Rue originally was trying to get $5,000 worth of drugs fronted to her. And Karen was about to give her $50,000. So she bargained back down to $10,000. So she's given a suitcase full of drugs in order to uh, execute this plan. And, you know, as you're watching it, you know Rue's troubles. And it's interesting because Euphoria kind of brought Dare, if we all remember Dare from uh elementary and like middle school you know where you used to have cops coming in for a period or whatever and they talk to you about the dangers of doing drugs that organization came on and they basically said that the show glamorizes drugs and when amongst teens and when i saw that i thought to myself i was like you know if you really break it down like of all the characters in the show up until Elliot was introduced like Rue was literally the only character that actually did hard drugs on the show everybody else did like perhaps weed um drank uh alcohol if you consider those things drugs but nobody did hard drugs except for her so you already knew when she got the suitcase it's it's like you know this is you know a dangerous game because now you're getting involved with a you know even though uh this lady's demeanor is very calm and cool and collected like a very like homely it's like you know she's a dangerous woman and she even says so much when she says to rue after she gives her the suitcase she's like you know you better bring me my 10k back and if you don't like i will have some people kidnap you and do things to you so you could see that rue was scared but at the same time in her eyes you could see like she understood the risk but she was she she received the risk, but all she could think about was the reward, which is like this shit ton of drugs. And, you know, I think all of us as the audience is watching and we're just intrigued to see how this is going to go. And I feel me personally, I feel like it's going to end up bad. And the first thing she does is she tries the drugs. And I'm like thinking to myself as she's doing it, I'm like, yo, like that right there is probably like you know, a good couple hundred dollars of drugs you just did, like, in that one thing that you did, you know, whatever that, you know, that one drug that you did, like, you probably just already, you're starting behind, and, it, you know, it goes back to Scarface, you know, don't get high on your own supply, like, if you ever check it, like, you've never seen Fez nor Ashtray really doing any, like, hard drugs, even though they're the guys that sell it. And, you know, the one thing I thought of when I saw that scene was, you know, there's a phrase, you know, sometimes people are too smart for their own good. And I think it's something that's been really, really portrayed throughout the season and three episodes so far. Rue is, albeit a drug addict, but she's highly intelligent. She's setting herself up to face some major ramifications if this thing goes sideways. So that's going to be something like to keep an eye on. And then also like interesting point in the first part of the episode, she does this whole elaborate um, how to relapse, how to relapse tutorial, because obviously she still lives with her mom and her sister. So she has relapsed and she's doing hard drugs again. But she covers it with her sister by doing weed. And obviously to uh, non-drug users, like weed gets lumped in with a lot of other hard drugs. So her sister instantly thinks that she's relapsed, which she has. But she covers it by saying, like, she's doing weed. It's harmless. Um, And then when her sister refuses to back off, she's like, well, you know, I could always kill myself. And that in of itself, she used that as like the second second step, gaslighting and, you know, putting it into people's heads that you could be harming them by not letting you do what you wanted to do. Another major storyline we've been following is Cassie, Nate, and Maddie, and the love triangle that they're in that Maddie probably doesn't even know she's in. So Cassie and Nate have been meeting in secret um they never talked to each other in school but nate is this is something to watch 
Nate is bold enough to bring her into his house because now his father knows that if Maddie finds out about Cassie, Maddie could blow up the whole family's life now that she has her own copy of the DVD. So I think that's why like, he's bringing Cassie over to his house or he feels comfortable enough bringing her to his house, but he doesn't feel comfortable enough doing it at school. So on Cassie's side, it has this really elaborate montage where where every day she gets up at 4 a.m., does this whole routine and tries to dress up to make Nate notice her at school. And it goes on about like four different times. And then on a fifth one, and I peeped this from the time I didn't even see her outfit yet. I peeped it from when I saw her hair because she had her baby hairs like gelled down. And soon as I saw it, I was like, it's a Maddie thing. So it goes on to another scene where it kind of reminds me of like a teen comedy show, not even like this type of teen drama show where Maddie and Cassie bump into each other with the same hairstyle and basically the same outfit on except different colors. And obviously their hair are, you know, the hair is different because uh, Maddie's, you know, a brunette and Cassie's blonde and Cassie, they look at each other and then Cassie runs off and like Maddie's looking like what the fuck is going on. And it just shows her ambivalence to what is going on with her best friend and her ex that she's still pining over and still wants to be with. But also in our scene, it, it is the only time in our whole montage that Nate notices Cassie. Maddie is what triggers his attraction to Cassie. But at the same time, it shows that Cassie is basically subconsciously admitting to herself that that's the one way he she can get his attention which is looking like the the woman she knows he wants to be with and not her and at one point it also showed the scene in a bathroom which has been like um featured in pre in the in the previews um for the season and to to me i really thought like it was sydney sweeney's like best acting thus far amongst a lot of great actors I, I feel like she does you know in the material she's been given you know she wasn't given like a bunch in the first season but so far in the season she's given plenty and she's done like such a great job with it and the scene I think definitely would be on her on her um Emmy reel um if they were to put her for like a supporting actress um nomination on the show for um dramas uh, it's interesting because I wanted to, I was telling um, another fan of the show that I, like, I felt that this episode would be the episode that it came out, that Maddie, um, you know, it came out to Maddie that Cassie and Nate had been sneaking around when she says to Maddie that, yeah, like, me and Nate's been seeing each other and I don't care because you're not together, blah, 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 blah. I thought she actually said it. So I was, you know, like fist pumping, like, yeah, I was right. And then it was all revealed to be like a dream sequence or it was just going on in her head. Uh, but I really, I really thought it was like a really good scene uh, all around, you know, cause in the bathroom, it basically had all the main female characters, uh, Kat, Maddie, Cassie, Lexi, Rue, I believe Jules, Jules was also there. So it was, like, it, was it was pretty interesting. I, 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 you know, as good as it seemed in the previews was how good it was in this episode. Uh, Lexi, who of course has been out here, you know, Lexi, who's another person who's been given a lot more material this season. It was like put out there that Lexi throughout her whole life had been an observer. Like she'd been observing her mom. She'd been observing her dad. She's been observing her sister. She's been observing Rue. Like she's basically been like a supporting character in her home in her own life so it had a nice little like fantasy scene where it showed maddie working on a sitcom you know as the director producer star of like this show in her life and she's described you know they're doing like a behind the scenes type of thing 
and Rue is featured in it as, you know, her friend or whatever, with the names changed. And the idea behind the show was like, what if the side character, friend character was the main character of the show? And I thought it was a cool scene because Maud Apatow is the daughter of Judd Apatow and Leslie Mann. And we know Judd Apatow, obviously, from directing movies, 40-year-old version, Knocked Up, Funny People, This Is 40. Um, and of course, you know, Leslie Mann, very talented actress. She's been in everything. Big Daddy, you know, all most of those Judd Apatow movies, cable, The Cable Guy. So she is the daughter of these talented people. And Judd Apatow, who also worked on TV, you know, doing uh, Undeclared and Freaks and Geeks is probably his most famous TV show. So I thought, I don't know if it was done on purpose. I would assume it is. Uh, showing her as basically her dad <laughs> slash her mom because she was acting on the show. But at the end of the of the episode, by the end, the mid to the end of the episode, she convinces the principal or the vice principal, whoever it was, to not put on the play Oklahoma, but to put let her put on her play. And apparently she's been writing this play and keeping notes of you know, all these other people in her life that she's been the side character for, like, she's been keeping notes of them, like, either mentally or just been coming up with her own stuff on her own and has been writing this play, you know, which is going to feature Cassie and Rue and possibly other people within this this friend group. And I, I like, me, like, my bold prediction is, like, this play is going to be like the the climax of this season. Like, I feel like it's going to be, it's either going to be the finale or it's going to be kind of like the inciting incident at some point in the middle of the season. And finally, one of the more interesting parts, and it's actually, although captivating, it's very like disheartening. Uh, this scene, as we've watched these two characters, like created a bond and uh, have came to, trust each other and care for each other and it, it wasn't portrayed more beautifully than in the first uh special in between the two seasons where Rue and Ali were talking on the diner which was a fantastic episode like excellent acting by Zendaya and excellent acting by Coleman Domingo but towards the end of the episode after Rue Obviously, it's been relapsing, and she's gotten a suitcase full of drugs. She shows up to one of her um, drug addicts anonymous meetings or whatever with the suitcase and, you know, wearing her mom's, like, power suit. And Ali, like, follows her out to the, the staircase. And I don't know. I think it was innocently. It was an innocent question when he asked, like, what's in the suitcase or whatever, and then... You know, obviously, Rue got really, really, like, defensive, and she's also high. He says, you know, what's in a suitcase? And Rue doesn't want to tell him. And, you know, it gets to a point where she kind of weaponizes the things that they've said to each other. And Ali is her sponsor in her drug rehabilitation. So when you're in a situation where you're sponsoring somebody, you know, addict or ex-addict, obviously you know, you're going to have to build up some, like, thick skin because things will be said, things will be done, that person will lash out, and you just have to be there to just accept them as they are. And he says as much where he's, you know, he said, I've accepted, like, the good, the bad, and the ugly with you, and this is how you're going to talk to me. And she basically weaponized a lot of the things like he admitted to her where, you know, he could have kept close to the best, such as his drug addiction caused him to become abusive towards his wife and his oldest child to the point that now he doesn't have a relationship with his kids anymore. And Rue kind of says something where it's like, yeah, like, what are you going to do? Hit me? And at that moment, like, you could see it. And I th like I said, I think it was excellent acting by Coleman Domingo where you could just see in his eyes and his face and his demeanor that he wasn't just hurt, but he also felt betrayed because she says to him, like, what are you going to do? Hit me? And at that moment, it was just like, 
yeah, you it's like, you know what? Like I told you something very ugly about me and you just like throw it in my face and it just it 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 it, it was just a sad scene, but it was so well acted. But as far as like the show is concerned, I was just like I think it I I also one thing I took away from it was like it wasn't just like it went that those words went from beyond hurt. I don't know what the motivation was. And I feel like it's going to be something she's going to have to repair. And I think the thing going forward is like, does like, will she ever want to repair that relationship? And I don't know if it's just, you know, the, the drugs and, and just like the, her rebellious nature or the fact that she saw her mom look at this man in a way that, her mother probably never looked at a man since her dad. And maybe she holds that resentment towards uh, Ali, where it's just like, you know, you're not my, you're not my dad. <laughs> oh, try to tell me something. But yeah, this, that, that part was like, really, it, it really ended the episode. Like I saw a note. So I'm really looking forward to this next episode. And it was interesting, like the whole, the, the theme of the, the movie Oklahoma. And I was like this, part where um <laughs> but like my favorite scene um of the episode or this is the scene that made me smile was like the part where um Cassie's in the bathroom and she's kind of dressed like this like country western she's she dressing like these this uh picnic table style thing and she got she has her hair done up like you know um she's got her hair done up like June Cash and somebody asked her she's auditioning to be in the play and um in in the, the Oklahoma play and like I think Maddie was like no she says to them oh no why what is wrong with what I'm wearing and then like Maddie's like bitch you better be choking I just it was just hilarious and you know it, the same way it hit in the episode was the same way it in the trailer which doesn't necessarily happen often but you know, we'll we'll keep watching. I just like I said, I thought this was probably the most intriguing episode from top to bottom. Was it the best episode? I don't know. You know, I'd have to rewatch the other one, but this this was the one where I like paid attention from top to from from top to bottom, and you know, it made me. You know, it had suspense, it had comedy, it had um parts that made you laugh another part or my favorite 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 part of the episode was when cal present day cal goes to fez's house and he's kind of like you know doing a stakeout and next thing you know he has like a shotgun pointed at his head by ashray so he goes into the house and you know fez is like man what do you want and this man who thinks he has all his power and all his influence he basically gets like pistol whipped by ashray and basically gets talked down to by fez and um he's actually really scared because uh in this interrogation like he admits he he inadvertently admits that there's some tape out there of him having sex with jules but he admits it now to these people. I had no idea about it. So uh, I thought, you know, all around like this episode, I thought it was really, really interesting. So I can't wait to see what goes on Sunday. And I can't wait to talk to you guys about it next week. All right. Award of the week for episode 83. Um, This one's a somber one. This past week, two very young NYPD officers were shot and killed while investigating a domestic disturbance. Jason Rivera and Wilbert Mora. Uh, Jason Rivera was killed instantly that night. Wilbert Mora was literally fighting for his life up until yesterday. And unfortunately, he passed away. But also, I want to applaud um, Samit Salon who was the third officer on the scene that was able to shoot and subdue the suspect who eventually also died. Uh, all three men, two Hispanic men and one young uh, person of Indian descent, you know, they obviously didn't look, you know, the part of the usual cops. And, you know, I wanted to give them a word of the week for being actual good cops. 
And, you know, they were looking like they were going to actually try to make a change and actually heard that Jason Rivera, um, that was his mission as he joined the NYPD because he saw his brother being stopped and frisked back when, you know, that archaic and very uh, uncivilized and very discriminatory process was being done back, you know, during the Bloomberg um administration you know he decided he wanted to be one of them guys that you know could become a cop and change from within and sadly enough both of these dudes younger than me passed away and every time I see the pictures I think of you know they look very much like guys I would have went to high school with guys that would have been my neighbor uh guys I would have been working you know, in ice cream shops and cafes with, they, it definitely hit uh, me in a personal place. So I was like, you know, these was guys that were going to basically, you know, try to change the system from within. And they really, they, they died doing something really heroic. And, you know, my prayers go to their friends and their family members and their loved ones and, you know, anybody that's, you know, feeling the pain of their loss and, you know, shout out to Samit Salon for, you know, for his, I think he only been on the force for like, you know, less than a year, if not like a little more than a year. And, you know, he did something heroic and, you know, getting this guy, um, you know, this, this, this murderer off the streets and, you know, they, they went to the house because, you know, he was threatening his mother, like, violently. So, Water Week is going to go to Jason Rivera, Wilbur Mara, and Samit Salon for, you know, being actual good cops. And that has been a Water Week. Our thoughts. So, NFL playoffs, you know, it's been pretty fantastic so far, so I won't expect anything less in the upcoming uh, conference championship game. So we'll keep an eye out for that and talk probably talk about it next week. And the Baseball Hall of Fame, man. Like, you know, congratulations to David Ortiz. I really actually wanted to give award of the week to David Ortiz um, for entering the Hall of Fame because – you know, I always had, like, the idea that, you know, the one thing that would start getting in um, a lot of the guys that, you know, I grew up watching but have been unfairly shut out from the Hall of Fame, you know, such as, you know, Gary Sheffield uh, and now, like, Alex Rodriguez, Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, so, so many other different athletes that, have made it into the Hall of Fame. Uh, I was like, you know, there's going to be somebody in there that's been, you know, explicitly linked or kind of sort of linked to PEDs. And they've already had, like, some people that's gotten in that have been, like, you know, associated to PEDs in some way, shape, form, or another, such as Mike Piazza, Pudge Rodriguez, Jeff Bagwell, uh, just to name a few. And like I said, even, I'm not saying that those guys did it or um, they don't belong to, they don't, they do not belong in the Hall of Fame. But, you know, I, I, I just don't like this idea. It's like, yo, like we got to let people into the Hall of Fame. Uh, I'm only letting in people into the Hall of Fame because these guys were like nice guys and they were sweet and they sent me like Christmas cards. And that's what it seems like with David Ortiz, where it's like, yo, like, he was on this list of people that tested positive back in 2003. And 2003 was literally the year that David Ortiz broke out and became the big poppy that we know, the Hall of Famer that we know. But I've, I've said that, you know, it would be somebody that goes in that's, you know, has this, you know, PED um, stain on them, and hopefully it will open a door for a lot more people. So hopefully at some point over the next 10 years, we'll get to see an A-Rod in the Hall of Fame. We'll get to see uh, Barry Bonds, uh, Sammy Sosa, Roger Clemens, Mark McGuire, like 
all of these people who entertain the shit out of us. And, uh, uh, you know, something I forgot to mention in that segment, there's somebody in the Hall of Fame that's overtly linked to PEDs, Bud Selig. He goes into the Hall of Fame uh, as commissioner of baseball. And it's like the one thing he's known for is that he was a commissioner of baseball when the 1994-95 strike happened where they literally had to cancel the World Series. Like, I don't think somebody would remember Adam Silver fondly if the NBA Finals were canceled. I don't think somebody would remember Roger Goodell fondly if the Super Bowl were canceled. Not that they do now, but I don't think they would be Hall of Fame worthy if something that's traditionally gone on for years happened to not occur because you, as the steward of the game, allowed it to not happen. Um, But, you know, if you went down and you made a list of pros and cons as to why Bud Selig belongs in the Hall of Fame, I assure you, all of the pros would somehow be linked to PEDs. You know, the league, you know, the major leagues becoming popular again after the strike. Why is that? Because Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, people were doing things they had never seen done. Or when they were done, they were done in times where uh, Sports Center and ESPN and, you know, all this, these highlights didn't exist. You know, in 1961, nobody, you know, there wasn't like a nightly news show to watch Roger Maris hit his 61st home run. There wasn't uh, something like that in 19. 19- in the 1920s when Beirut hit 60 home runs. It wasn't something like that when Hank Greenberg hit 58 home runs. There wasn't stuff like that. So that's the popularity was that was brought to the game by these guys that allegedly used PEDs. The league expanded. How is that linked to steroids? Well, as I said in the segment, a lot of guys who otherwise wouldn't be in the major leagues were suddenly in the major leagues because with the Tampa Bay Devil Rays at the time, Arizona Diamondbacks, Florida Marlins at the time, and the Colorado Rockies, that was 100 more MLB jobs that were created. That doesn't mean that 100 more MLB players just, you know, appeared. So there were a lot of guys in the majors who probably didn't deserve to be in the majors who were pitching and or hitting that inflated some of these pitchers and hitters' stats. All of these new stadiums being built, you know, another subject for another day. Public financing for new stadiums being built. A lot of cities and municipalities probably look at these stadiums as if they were going to get a return in investment because people were going to come out in droves to these stadiums. They would create more jobs in these stadiums because people were hitting all these astronomical home runs. People wanted to come to the stadium. Uh, you know, all these things were done during Bud Selig's time and they were associated to steroids. Euphoria, as I said, Awesome episode from top to bottom. As far as I'm concerned, I was interested. I did not take my eyes off the screen, not once. I don't think I had to rewind it because I wasn't paying attention because it kept you that much captivated. And, you know, uh, I usually don't talk about award or weekend this segment. But again, I want to send out my well wishes to uh, these two young officers who passed away and their friends, their families, their loved ones, uh, believe one of them had just gotten married. So my, you know, prayers and love out to his, you know, um, now widowed wife and shout out to, uh, the young officer, um, who was able to get this, uh, violent criminal off the streets. Um, who killed these officers and was probably about to kill his mother. Um, Shout out to him. So this has been episode 83 of Shook Me The Money. Please keep on listening and watching us on YouTube. And just keep on the lookout for all of our new things. And, you know, follow us on social media at Shook Me The Money on Instagram 
and on Twitter. And as always, show me the moony, show me the moony, show me the moony. <laughs>